This is Silver Star Bible School 2009. This is the sixth day and our first class of the day, which our brother Ken Stiles will be leading. His theme for the week is the blessing of forgiveness. And today's class, the power, wisdom, and joy of forgiveness. And please feel free to go for a full 50 minutes, brother Ken. talk about the power of forgiveness this morning. We better make sure we have some power available to speak about. It may just take me a minute to uh, come online, so to speak. That's not a good sign. It normally takes about five minutes for my computer to warm up. (laughs) I was hoping it would have just shut down, but apparently that's not the case. So we'll pick up uh, then with Psalm 51, and when we conclude Psalm 51, we'll go back and look at the points that we reviewed from yesterday, if that's okay with everyone. As you uh, will remember, we had... um, (laughs) Come down to verse 4 in the psalm, just by way of review. In this psalm, we're seeing the model, really, of true repentance and restoration. We see that God forgives with a purpose to lead us away from sin and back to righteousness. And and Psalm 51 is an excellent example of how God achieved that purpose in the life of David. In verse 1, we saw where David appealed to God on the basis of his character. So that some of the things we've been talking about this week, David was very familiar with. In the midst of his sin, he knew that God was a forgiving God and appeals to him on that basis. In verse 4, we had concluded yesterday with the fact that God, or David declares God right in holding him accountable for his sin. And that's why we said anyone found in the position where David was of unconfessed or unrepented sin must go through the door of Psalm 51. There's probably a better way to express that. But the point being that the principles that we see in David's confession and repentance and his conversion are the same principles. Now, typically when we're trying to help a sinner, they will resist the need to go through Psalm 51 because... If they're resisting the need, it's because they are not willing to embrace the principles. If they were, they would already have gone through it themselves. We're talking now about brethren and sisters who may be overcome by sin during their probation. But Psalm 51 is where all of us must come to when we find ourselves having been overwhelmed by the sin uh, that so easily besets us. Verses 16 and 17, we saw the contrition of David, the broken spirit and the broken heart. In verse 8 of Psalm 51, David describes the lack of joy that existed. And we all know what this is like by experience. The lack of joy and gladness to one who is burdened down by unconfessed sin. Make me to hear joy and gladness, he says, that the bones which thou hast broken may rejoice. In verse 12 he adds, Restore unto me the joy of my salvation. When we have sinned and we refuse to confess it or try to excuse it, we lose the joy of the hope that we have. The joy of being right with God. The joy of being able to look forward to the kingdom. David lost the joy. The joy of having fellowship with the Father. He lost the joy when he sinned and refused to confess it. And when he lost the joy, brethren and sisters, he lost God in his life. 
He was a man initially overcome by sin. And then who sins, as we know, on top of his sin. And then in an attempt to hide his sin, will deny his sin. And through it all, he's writing now to tell us that he had lost the joy. Whenever we go down the path of failing to confess our sins, and if we have reflected upon our life this week, and there are sins in our life, that we need to confess and repent from and repudiate. We need to take that to heart. If you're anything like me, when I go to a Bible school or I go to a study day and I'm exposed to the principles of God's Word, within days, He will put situations in my life that will challenge whether or not the principles that I have learned I am willing to put into practice. Because he's looking to see, is my word going to take hold in your life? We can't just sit here and think about these things this week. Not just in this class, but all the classes we've had, the discussions we've had. He's looking for us to change, to conform. It may not be giant steps, but the transformation process doesn't require giant steps. But it does require that when we have been convicted of our sin or our shortcomings... As Brother Skip mentioned in his prayer, when we are aware of the fact that we have fallen short of his glory, we need to take hold of that and acknowledge that and take responsibility for that. So when we go down the path of failing to to confess our sins or trying to deny them, or maybe committing additional sins like David did in order to cover up what we have done, whatever we might gain, whatever we might gain, in terms of saving public shame or humiliation or ridicule or preserving our reputation or our name, whatever it is, whatever it is we're trying to hold on to because we don't want to have to confess our sin, we lose God in the process. So whatever it is that we think is so important that we just can't come clean, so to speak, with what's happening in our life, the cost of unconfessed sin is we lose the joy and we lose God. It's not worth it. And David writes to tell us it's not worth it. We lose our relationship with him. He hides his face from us and will no longer hear our prayers. Verse 11 echoes this outcome of a broken relationship with God. Cast me not away from thy presence and take not thy Holy Spirit from me. The broken relationship with God is an enormous price to pay for unconfessed sin. Surely our relationship with God is of far greater price, far greater value than whatever we might stand to lose by confessing our sins. All right, if we can just skip ahead here. Sorry for the, uh, the slight delay. In verse 9, if you uh, draw your attention to the screen, the reference in Psalm 51 to God taking away his Holy Spirit may well be to the fact that David was acutely aware that God had taken away his spirit from Saul because of Saul's persistent rebellion against God. And it's worth noting that in the end, David's sins are just as grievous as Saul's. It's not really worth having the debate which man was more sinful. But both end up basically in the same position. The difference between them, as we know, is how they responded to their sins when their sins were exposed. And in the end, that will be the difference between the sheep and the goats at the judgment seat. Not in whether or not they sinned, but in how they responded to their sin. One man understands and embraces the righteous requirements God has established for forgiveness. The confession, the repentance, the conversion the need to walk in the light, the need to forgive those who sin against us. He learns from his mistakes, he will repudiate his sin, he will be converted, and he will never again return to that way of life. The other man failed to submit either to the principles or the spirit of what we see regarding forgiveness as expressed 
in Psalm 51. But in verse 9, there's a notable link to Isaiah 59, verse 2. Remember, that's where we began on Sunday evening or Sunday morning as it was. When we sin, Psalm 59, or Isaiah 59, verse 2 says that our sins separate us from God. In verse 9, David writes, Hide thy face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. When we look back at Isaiah 59, it speaks of the fact that but your iniquities have separated between you and your God, and your sins have hid his face from you, that he will not hear you. And as we have seen, if we continue in unconfessed sins and fail to repent, God will hide his face. He will stop listening to our prayers. And David acknowledges here, by his confessed sin, his prayer that was that God would hide his face from his sins, not from David himself. In verse 13 of Psalm 51, David looks to the good that God would accomplish through David's cleansing. Then will I teach transgressors thy ways, and sinners shall be converted unto thee. Recognize in this verse, who David is talking about are not the Gentiles. They are not those who have never been part of the truth and now are being converted to the truth. This psalm is for us, brethren and sisters. It's for those who have been in the truth. It doesn't matter how long. Those who have been in the truth and have been overcome by sin. It's for believers who are looking to find our way back to God. This is how they can be converted. Turning from a direction of sin back to a direction of righteousness. One brother has written, David's experience has taught many to hope in God's mercy despite great waywardness and to trust the outworking of their lives to a faithful creator. The public record of his transgressions, his wholehearted confession, repentance, and trust in Yahweh's forgiveness, his patient acceptance of the necessary chastening to purge the evil from his heart, have all combined to teach transgressors how God redeems us from iniquity and breaks the power of sin in our lives. He goes on to say, There is personal reassurance and motivation for all brothers and sisters in this demonstration of God's unbounded goodness and faithfulness to a repentant sinner, servant sorry, to go forward with their lives in patience and hope, trusting his unseen hand to open the way and provide opportunities to be useful to him in serving one another despite our past transgressions. Only genuine faith and trust can make us willing to submit ourselves to God's chastening over a lifetime so that we gradually acquire and reflect his righteousness. In verses 14 and 15 of Psalm 51, David further appeals to God, Deliver me from blood guiltness. Guiltiness, he says, O God, thou God of my salvation, and my tongue shall sing aloud of thy righteousness. O Lord, open thou my lips, and my mouth shall show forth thy praise. Do you see the wonder of forgiveness, brethren and sisters? See, see the underlying encouragement for all sinners in these verses. Here is a confessed murderer and adulterer who sinned on top of sin to try and hide what he had done. And he speaks of singing the praises of God's righteousness. That a murderer could become a witness to God's righteousness shows us that the power of God's righteousness as revealed in forgiveness can overcome sin. If God had simply ignored David's sin, David could not sing of the greatness of God's righteousness. And certainly if God had put David to death for his sin, which he could have done because of the severity of what he had done, certainly then David couldn't have sung of God's righteousness. But by the wonderful blessing of forgiveness, because of God's forgiving character, because he forgives to enable faithful men and women who sin to be recovered and renewed and restores them so that they can be part of his purpose, prophesied in his name. Because of that, David the murderer, David the adulterer, could sing great praise and thanksgiving over the blessing of forgiveness. And David would be the perfect man 
to sing that hymn of praise and thanksgiving to God for the righteousness that he restores to us. He would be the perfect man, not because of his uprightness, but because of his terrible wickedness, for which he had been forgiven. Because surely if God can forgive a man who sinned like David, God can forgive all sinners. Which is one of the reasons Psalm 51 is in our, it is in our Bible. So God is showing us, if I can take this man who did the gravity of sin that he did and forgive him, I can forgive all sinners provided they repent as he repented and provided they align themselves with the principles that, that David speaks of in this psalm. Psalm 51 shows the beauty of the righteousness of God at work to overcome sin. He doesn't ignore it. He doesn't condone it. And he doesn't pretend it isn't there. He covers it by his mercy and his grace. And he takes it away. And he blots it out. And he removes it, as we know, as far as the heaven is above the earth. Without compromising any of his righteous principles. Because the sinner has approached him on the basis of those righteous principles. Now, before going on to Psalm 32, let's just back up and quickly review what we saw yesterday. Peter and the disciples wrestled with the concept of forgiveness as taught by Jesus due to the standard of conduct it requires. So several times in the Gospels we see Jesus speaking of forgiveness and the level of forgiveness that we should be willing to extend to one another and the response of the disciples is one of disbelief. How can we ever meet that requirement, that standard that you're establishing for us? The unforgiving creditor stands as a warning that the flesh seeks all the benefits of forgiveness from God, but is averse to extending mercy towards others. We saw strong wording in the parable of the unforgiving creditor that was so wonderfully displayed last night by the young people and the children. The strong wording tells us and underscores for us that if we are unwilling to forgive others, we will not be in the kingdom. The level of mercy we learn from the parable that we extend to others is the same level of mercy that God extends to us. So his mercy will vary by person to person in this room. Not because he is limited in the amount of mercy he is ready and willing to show, but his mercy is limited by the amount of mercy we show to others and how we live and conduct our, our own behavior. Forgiveness does not mean we turn a blind eye to sin or condone wrong behavior, nor does it remove the ecclesia's responsibility to uphold right doctrine. We saw the danger yesterday as well that forgiveness should not be equated with ecclesial discipline. It is not a sin to forgive a person who has not repented. It is a sin to fail to hold a person accountable for wrong teaching and conduct of a serious nature. James 3, verse 14, describes the confrontational state an ecclesial will degenerate into when it loses the ability to forgive and forbear. So turn with me now to Psalm 32, if you would, because it really should be read in connection with Psalm 51. <clears throat> It appears to be written a short time later, sometime after Psalm 51, after David had had time to reflect upon the forgiveness that he had uh, received at God's hand. It begins in verse 1 with David reflecting upon the outcome of forgiveness, calling the forgiven sinner blessed. Blessed is he whose transgression is covered, whose whose transgression is forgiven, forgiven, whose sin is covered. And the word, as we probably know, For blessed means happy. Forgiveness is intended to leave us feeling happy, feeling encouraged, removing the despair, having the feel of, of the zeal of the truth restored in our heart. For a godly man and woman, sin creates despair and discouragement. But forgiveness is intended to replace that which can oftentimes overwhelm us and leave us thinking that we are unworthy servants and God has made us a mistake in our selection. We've got the unworthy servant part right. We certainly are. But we don't have it right if we think God has made a mistake in our selection and calling. 
because he has provided the way for us to respond to sin if we will do so by faith. Forgiveness is specifically or specially intended by God not to allow us to become overcome by discouragement. It's specifically intended to restore the feeling of joy and not let sadness and despair rule over our life. In verse 2, he repeats this concept of being happy or blessed in whom Yahweh imputes no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no guile. We call in Romans 4, we won't take the time this morning to look it up, but Paul reviews or recounts how two men, Abraham and David, were both reckoned to be righteous. Recall in, in Romans 4 that the word impute there means to count or to consider, to reckon, to label, to categorize, to put in the category of righteous. And David says here that God does not count or reckon a sinner to be a sinner, even though the sinner sinned. So how is it a person can sin and God doesn't reckon the sinner to be a sinner? It's because of the wonderful provision of forgiveness. God removes the sin so that the sinner is no longer considered such. What does God consider him to be if not a sinner? God considers him to be righteous because he has removed the sin and he has made the sinner righteous. On the basis of the sinner having complied and upheld the righteous requirements that God has established. That's why we don't need to be left in despair. And, and certainly we should not try and take advantage of this. We know of the grace and the mercy that God extends. But the principles of Psalm 51, the principles of Psalm 32, if we are sincere in applying these. God says, I can turn a sinner into a righteous individual. And I do it because I forgive the sinner. And that's Paul's point in Romans 4. Now we're not dealing with the false teaching of the Judaizers who stressed the need for the works of the law. That's what Paul was contending with in Romans 4. And so he establishes these two examples. He first cites Abraham's situation and he says, Brethren, how was Abraham made righteous? It's not because of what he did, it's because he believed. And how was David made righteous? Sinful David. How was he made righteous? And he was made righteous on the basis of his belief, not in promises, but in the belief that God would forgive him despite what he had done. And there is God taking David and putting him right alongside Abraham. One, a man who believed in promises. The other, who had committed great sin. And they stand side by side in God's eyes. Not because of their works, certainly in David's case, but because of their belief. One in the promise, the other that God will forgive me. And so there is the encouragement. That's why David can speak of the joy of forgiveness. He can stand right next to Abraham despite what he had done. Because of the wonderful blessing of forgiveness in his life. God had taken David, a very, very, very sinful man. And despite the murder, despite the adultery, despite the deceit, despite the guile, despite the fact that he had sinned on top of sins, he could forgive that man because of the spirit that he manifested in response to his sin when his sin was exposed. That's why he associates joy with forgiveness. In verses 3 and 4, David writes, When I kept silence, my bones waxed old through my roaring all the day long. Verse 4, For day and night thy hand was, upon, was heavy upon me. My moisture is turned into the draught of summer. And it's describing, as we're likely aware, of the condition of David mentally and potentially physically while he was in that period of time of unconfessed sin. It was not a happy time for David in those days. It was not a blessed condition. When his reference to his bones or his body, it may well mean that there was prematuring aging that was taking place, resulting in anguish and torment. And so he likens his body to a plant which withers in the summer heat. In the absence of forgiveness, in the absence of unconfessed or in the presence of unconfessed sin, we are left spiritually paralyzed 
and in agony. And that is what David is describing in this verse. God's hand was upon him. God was not a passive observer. And David's period of his life when he remains an unconfessed sinner. He wouldn't force David's confession. In verse 5, we see the turning point. I acknowledged my sin unto thee, as he says in the RSV, and I did not hide my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to Yahweh. Then thou didst forgive the iniquity or the guilt of my sin. And as soon as David confesses his sins, God forgives him. And it's helpful to see verses 3, 4, and 5 together. So long as the sin remained unconfessed, there was only anguish. And it's helpful to see the iniquity of verse 2 and the iniquity of verse 5. In one case, the iniquity was unconfessed, and the other, when David had confessed the iniquity, he receives forgiveness. Verse 2, however, doesn't happen until verse 5 occurs. Recall back in uh, verse 17 of, of Psalm 51, when David went through and recounted the mental anguish that he had suffered and how his heart had been broken and he brought before God a contrite spirit pleading with God to be cleansed and seeking his mercy. In verse 11 in this psalm, Psalm 32, David identifies the joy of forgiveness. This is the outcome of the wonderful blessing of forgiveness. The burden and the guilt and the agony and the despair and the depression are all gone. All gone. He doesn't carry a burden the rest of his life. How can one man who put another man to death speak of joy? And he can do so because he has been cleansed. God will make it right with Uriah. It's too late for David to make it right with Uriah. But he knows that God can make that situation right, whatever it requires. He's let go of the burden of his sin. He's not being disingenuous in this psalm when he talks about the joy that he had, even though he had caused great grief to others. Because David believed that God had forgiven him and had forgiven him completely had wiped it all out. His sin was gone. So David calls forgiven sinners righteous in verse 11, including himself. And on what basis can forgiven sinners be called righteous? It's the same principle that we see in Romans 4. Only what we see here is that Paul was borrowing the principle from Psalm 32. It's David that establishes the fact that a forgiven sinner is made righteous by God because of the wonder of this blessing of forgiveness. And Paul then reaches back into Psalm 32 to show those Judaizer believers. There is, there is David talking about sinners being made righteous. How is that possible? Only by God's forgiveness. In verse 11, we see what a cleansed conscience looks like and sounds like. Be glad in Yahweh and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Shout for joy, brethren and sisters. That is where forgiveness is intended to lead us. Not with long faces. Not carrying some burden and lamenting our past. It's to lead us to joy. A public declaration of what the wonder of God's blessing of forgiveness can accomplish in our life. Not like some Pentecostal or charismatic evangelical who just says the words and thinks all the sins are gone. That's not what we're talking about. This is genuine, sincere repentance that David has gone through. And what he's telling us is if you go through that process, you come out at the other end singing for joy of what God is able to accomplish in our life. It's at the opposite end of the spectrum from guilt and shame. One other Old Testament individual we wanted to leave with you for future consideration regarding forgiveness is the wonderful woman Abigail. 
If you turn back to 1 Samuel 25, we're on our way to Luke 17, but wanted to just pause here for a moment. We won't be able to consider it in detail. But when opportunity presents itself, take another look at this wonderful story of this woman who understood the wisdom and power of forgiveness. And she was able to lead a wrath-filled, vengeance-seeking brother back to forgiveness. And there's a warning in this chapter, brethren and sisters. And the, the warning is there is a navel in each of our lives. Do not allow one who sins against you to cause you to commit sin yourself. If David is not careful in this situation, the sin that Nabal commits against him will cause David and incite David to commit a far greater sin in response. And that's exactly what happens when the evil spirit that is unleashed when the sin is committed against us is allowed to take root and to bear fruit. And Abigail will save David from that dangerous path. Better is it to forgive and take the path of forgiveness than the path of anger. Because the path of forgiveness empties the power of evil from your life. When we learn to forgive others who sin against us, it preserves us on the path to salvation. To inherit the eternal blessing that Abigail speaks of in this chapter. It was a very public sin that had been committed against David, and it's of a personal nature. It's attacking his name, his character. It's attacking his integrity. It's mocking his past faithful service. It involves ridicule and public shaming and slander and false accusation. He has been faithfully protecting Nabal's herds for some time. He sends his men in his own name in verse 5 and 9 to honor Nabal in verse 14 to seek provisions for the feast. Nabal responds by railing on David's men and accusing David of being an unfaithful, rebellious traitor to Saul. And David allows the full force of Nabal's public rebuke and ridicule and shame to envelop his heart. And the sin of Nabal unleashes a terrible evil spirit in the heart of David. And that spirit has the power to consume him. It has the power to spiritually destroy him. I am going to kill him and all who are with him is David's response. Every man gird on his sword. So Nabal's sin against David is about to cause David an even greater sin. One man, thank you. One man with his words. One man with his words. The other is about to sin with his sword. In verses 23 to 25, as we know, we won't go through the account, but just recognizing that Abigail learns of these events and she intercedes to prevent David from doing what he did. She felt a personal responsibility for what was happening, no doubt because she was involved in the affairs of the home. But what's worth noting in our studies is that Abigail recognized that the situation when this tremendous personal sin had been uh, unleashed against David, The situation called for forgiveness, not vengeance. Don't take the matter into your own hands. And that's what we do. When we allow the sin that has been committed against us to cause us to incite us to respond in whatever way other than forgiveness, we begin to travel the same path that David was traveling that day. Her message to David was don't slay the sinner. Forgive the sinner. He is, heading, he is heading on a path of destruction. He's going to slay the one who has sinned against him. And she says, David, you've got it 180 degrees wrong. What you ought to be doing is forgiving the one who has sinned against you. And Abigail's plea to David in this chapter is a plea to us. Anytime someone has sinned against us, don't let your natural feelings dictate your response. And don't fool yourself into thinking that you should wait for the other person to repent and apologize before you you forgive. Nabal will never repent in this chapter. 
because men like Nabal never do repent. They simply go from sin to sin to sin to sin. From false accusation to false accusation to false accusation. They slander this brother one week and they slander that brother the next week. And if we're not careful and we don't forgive that and we respond to it, as David was about to respond to Nabal, one man in an ecclesia can bring down an entire ecclesia because he fills all the brethren in the ecclesia with these vengeance-like feelings and responses. One man. But if those brethren learn to forgive men like Nabal and realize he is just going from one sin to the next, I am not going to let his influence on me cause me to change my character. The evil power had the potential to destroy David, to cause him to act in a very ungodly manner. Nabal, the record said he was foolish, he was churlish, he was a doer of evil. And he had the ability to bring down David without ever lifting a finger. And that's what the navels of life can do to us. They can bring us down without ever lifting a finger against us. Just a tongue. And if we respond to that tongue, in this day and age, electronically, if we respond to those emails, to those fingers that are doing the same thing that Nabal did, we can be brought down just as David was about to be brought down. But thanks be to God in his life, Abigail intervened and said, David, don't respond to this sin with anger. Respond with forgiveness. Put the matter in God's hands. We come now to consider Luke 17. At verse 3, it's probably the single verse that has been quoted to me most often this week. What about Luke 17? Take heed to yourselves if thy brother trespass against thee, rebuke him. If he repent, forgive him. And if he trespass against thee seven times in a day, and seven times in a day turn again to thee, saying, I repent, thou shalt forgive him. It is suggested, suppose, that verse 3 teaches that when a brother sins against you, you should rebuke him, and following the rebuke, only if he repents, should you forgive him. And on the surface, it appears this is what Jesus is teaching. But now that we have seen the weight of evidence in Scripture that calls us to an altogether different behavior, let's take another look at it went back and looked at the writings of Brother Roberts and Brother Walker and Brother Collier. In 1890, a a brother wrote to Brother Roberts, is verse 3 of Luke 17 a prelude to forgiveness for an erring brother to repent? In 1908, a brother wrote to Brother C.C. Walker, I cannot forgive an offending brother, for if I do, I will make myself as great an offender. In 1933, Brother Collier cites how a brother had written him, Unless a brother repent, we are not called upon to forgive. And in all three cases, Brother Roberts Walker and Brother Collier responded by saying, This verse is not teaching that you should wait until your brother repents before you forgive him. And the reasons they gave was reasoning that the context of these verses... Is to, make, is to encourage us to make every effort to extricate the brother who has stumbled. Clearly, in Luke 17, Jesus is encouraging his disciples to be far more forgiving than they are naturally prepared to do. Take heed to yourselves, he says in verse 3. Don't get this part wrong, he says. You are not likely going to forgive your brother as often as you need to, And you need to be aware of the need to forgive your your brother far more often. Multiple times, he says. And to underscore the need for that, he cites the extreme example about a brother sinning, being rebuked, repenting and forgiving, and then sinning, being rebuked, repenting and forgiving seven times in a single day. And Jesus says, be prepared to forgive. The sin followed by repentance does not introduce a new justification so that I don't have to forgive my brother until he repents. 
The repentance is added in these verses to show the cycle that a brother could be in. He will sin, he'll be rebuked, he repents, forgiveness. Sins, rebukes, repents, forgiveness. Jesus says this same cycle could be repeated seven times in a single day. A brother could flip-flop seven times. And all seven times, he says, you need to forgive him. He is not introducing a new requirement to forgiveness that he himself didn't practice when he forgave others. That Stephen didn't practice, that Paul didn't practice, that Joseph didn't practice, that David didn't practice. What he's teaching his disciples is even under this exaggerated condition of seven times in one day, a brother flip-flopping between doing right and doing wrong, be prepared to accept him back every single time. And the disciples, in response to this, say in verse 5, Lord, increase our faith. You've asked us to do something that's very, very difficult. It's somewhat tragic that this verse intended to impress upon us just how forgiving we should be towards one another. It is so often cited to justify the exact opposite behavior. The behavior of withholding forgiveness, not extending it. We can never bring about good in a situation, brethren and sisters, by refusing forgiveness. We can never bring about good in a situation by refusing forgiveness to one another. We've seen this week, it doesn't mean that we, hold, we fail to hold people accountable for wrong behavior. But if we start down the path of not forgiving our brother or sister, we are starting down a path that will not be helpful to the brother or sister. The only one in Scripture who does not forgive sinners is God. We are commanded, encouraged to forgive one another. All the other references we've looked at this week speak of the need for us to forgive one another, and none of them spoke of the provision that we need to wait until the person repents. Corrective action? Action? Absolutely. But we ought not wait for their repentance. We ought not wait for the apology. All we do is perpetuate the bitterness and the hard feelings and the animosity and leash between two people when the sin occurs. As we say, Jesus is not introducing a new component in Luke 16, Luke 17, sorry, requiring that our brother repent first. He is not encouraging us to wait to forgive. Take a look. Think through what happens mentally and practically. If we decide, no, Brother Ken, you're wrong, Scripture actually encourages us to withhold forgiveness until the sinner repents. Examine the outcome of that situation. I now need to keep track of all the unrepented sins committed against me because I can't forgive you until you apologize. So I'd better carry a book of some kind because I'll forget otherwise. And by the way, you better carry a book as well and I better get around to each of you and say, is my name in your book? Because if it is, I need to apologize so you can take my name out of your book. Love doesn't keep score, 1 Corinthians 13 tells us. I also need to make sure I have confessed all my sins to God or He won't forgive me. But which of us is aware of all the sins that we have committed against God? But if our standard is you don't apologize to me, I don't forgive you, then God says my standard with you is if you don't apologize to me and confess your sin then I won't forgive it. And for those sins that you're not even aware of, I can't forgive those others. Point four, if my brother were instead my enemy who committed the same sin that my brother has committed, Matthew 5 verse 44 says, I need to forgive him. So I end up treating my enemy better than my brother. <laughs> because my, my enemy, who will never, never repent, never apologize, Matthew 5 says, I need to forgive him. I need to love him and all those who mistreat me. But then I put my brother in a different category and say, well, I won't forgive him. And that's why sometimes, brethren and sisters, we see brethren and sisters being treated worse than people's enemies because we get confused on these things. 
All the verses which warn me of the need to forgive those who sin against me, if I want to be forgiven, should be understood to mean I should first wait for my brother to repent, to repent even though none of those other versions, none of those other versions, verses mention this proviso. Number six, my natural inclination of not wanting to forgive those who sin against me is what I should follow. Because when somebody forgets sins against me, my natural heart takes over. I'm not going to forgive that person. He has caused me hurt. He's got to do this and this and this before I'll think about forgiving him. That's my natural heart. And if he never does this and this and this, and you know what happens? My natural heart was right. And I don't forgive him. That can't be right. That can't be right. Because in the end, my natural feelings will have proven to be godly behavior. That can't be what the gospel of Christ is leading us to. It has an impact on us and how we live. How we view the subject of forgiveness. We've said earlier, when a person sins against us, we have a decision to make. Do we go the path of of faith? Or do we go the path of pride? How we view forgiveness will also determine what our ecclesia is like. What type of ecclesia do you want to be a member of? One in which all are encouraged to forgive immediately? Or one in which forgiveness is withheld until the preconditions are met? which each of the members is allowed to establish when they have been sinned against. What kind of a marriage do you want? One in which both partners are encouraged to forgive? Or one in which both partners establish preconditions before forgiveness will be extended? Brethren, if your marriage is anything like mine, ask your wife if she waits to forgive you for all of your shortcomings. Until you've repented, I guarantee what her answer is going to be. Which marriage do you think will be the happiest? The one in which both partners are forgiving immediately? Or the one in which both partners are setting preconditions? That's why it impacts how we live. Which ecclesia do you think will be the happiest? And the most spiritually uplifting and rewarding. The ecclesia in which... As a standard practice, when you sin against another, they establish preconditions. Here's the apology I need. Here's how it needs to be said. Here's the condition you need to be in when you give it to me. Or the ecclesia that encourages its members, forgive the individual. We don't turn a blind eye to sin. We're not allowing false doctrine in. The ecclesia that has preconditions and the ecclesia that forgives immediately are going to be two different ecclesias. And don't think this ecclesia that it forgives immediately when one person sins against another, don't think for a minute that the false brethren of Jude will make further inroads into this ecclesia. Because this ecclesia will still stand up for the truth. It will still contend for the faith. It will still go through the process of Matthew 18. So nothing is lost in upholding the truth when we forgive immediately. All that's lost is all of the negative ill will and, and, and anxiety and tension and hatred. That all goes if it's the practice of the members of our ecclesia to forgive all the offenses that are committed against them. And if you think something is serious enough to pursue through Matthew 18, have a discussion with another brother. And if he thinks it meets that threshold, then he will get other brethren involved. But by far and away, most of the, prob- the troubles we are experiencing in our ecclesias today, most of the ill will between members, are not over issues of first principle doctrine. It's because we have lost the ability to forgive one another. The last point we'll leave you with. If you're still not convinced of the need to forgive immediately, We don't have the time to go through it. I'll leave it with you to consider, but it's found in Luke 22, verses 31 to 34. For the sake of time, recall the incident. Jesus knows Peter is going to sin against him. He knows he's going to deny him. And Jesus turns to Peter before the sin is committed. In verse... 32. And he says, Peter, 
I have prayed for you that your faith will not fail and that you will be converted to strengthen your brother. This is a man praying for Peter before the sin of Peter is committed against him. Because the focus of the Lord Jesus Christ is not on the hurt that Peter would cause him when he denied him. The focus of the Lord Jesus Christ is on the need for the sinner to be recovered, to be renewed, to be strengthened. That his faith fail not, that he be converted. So that the sinner by being recovered can be strengthened and continue to help others. That's the mind of the Lord Jesus Christ, brethren and sisters. So not only did he forgive people as they were sinning against him. He forgave people before the sin ever occurred. Because his desire was to see the sinner be converted and be recovered from the sin that would be committed against him. If we can adopt that same spirit towards one another, and if we can learn to pray for those who sin against us, that their faith not fail, that they be, re- they be strengthened and they be converted in order to help others again, then we are beginning to learn the wonderful provision of forgiveness. Not just to heal broken relationships, but to enable us to pray for each other, that sin not overcome us, but that we be converted, that be, we be restored to the path of righteousness, so that God can be honored in that process and that we can sing for joy of the wonderful provision of forgiveness that we have so that the sinner can continue to be helpful to God and strengthening others in the last days and the few days that remain for us. On behalf of everyone here, I would like to thank our brother Ken for his classes this week. I've learned a lot. Uh, The understanding of the character of God is greater than the outworking of that in how we should apply the character of God in our lives and develop the character of love uh, of God in our lives. To forgive immediately while holding accountable when that's appropriate that the brother or sister might be one for the kingdom. So we thank Brother Ken 